You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Rightly, we've sung that Jesus is our good shepherd, but if you look at some of the paths that he chooses, and you begin to wonder who's holding the compass up and down, up and down. Well, when life doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, the natural human reaction is grief. We experience it. And Paul's been talking about it as he's gone through these seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, which are really a unit. You can see that when you notice that they begin with talk of God, the God of all consolation or comfort or encouragement. It's the same word, different translation. He ends with that same affirmation, God of all consolation. Uh, we, we understand that Paul begins this section with a bit of his travel narrative. He's telling us how he's making his way from Ephesus through Troas north and then across into uh, Macedonia looking for Titus. And now at the end, in chapter 7, he picks up that same narrative. And in chapter 8, the subject is going to change as Paul moves on to discussion of the uh, Jerusalem collection and his uh, excitement that the Corinthian congregation desires to be a generous uh, people. But at the end of this block on failure, Paul sums it up with a kind of an axiomatic statement about grief. You and I will experience grief. You don't have a choice about that. But what you do have a decision to make is what kind of grief you will experience. And Paul says there are really just two kinds of grief. Godly grief or worldly grief. Let's take a look at that. Would you open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 10? You'll find that on page 941 of our Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 down through verse 10. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Let's listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. For even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance, for you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Some years ago, I was doing student ministry at uh, MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, I was sitting with a student who grew sort of grave in the face. And I thought, perhaps there's a crisis. And uh, he just kind of blurted it out. He said, George, I think I'm sinusoidal. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? 911, uh, ask him if he has the means, you know, to do anything. Is, are you thinking of doing harm to yourself? You know, I'm going through my back, my training and, and, uh, he sees the alarm in my face and he realizes, okay, humanities major, um, gonna have to explain again another term to George, like was so often the case for me at MIT. He says, George, I'm sinusoidal, not suicidal. <laughs> oh. What's sinusoidal? And uh, he pulls out a napkin and a pen and dry, draws the y-axis and the x-axis, this Cartesian plane, and 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 graphs. I says it's a sine curve, sinusoidal. It's a line. It's a wave. It goes up and there's a crest, and then it comes down and there's a trough, and then it goes up and everything's great. And then it goes down and things start to turn horrible again and, and bombs out and it, and that's my life. You know, I, I, I have periods of, of great happiness and, and joy and then periods of total depression. I have times in my life where I feel like I am so close to God, I can feel Him holding my hand and, and then times where I just feel like I'm the worst sinner Ever, and my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and he's nowhere nearby. Periods of success in my faith and periods of utter failure. I think my life is sinusoidal <laughs> and I need help. And I kind of laugh and smile. I said, well, <laughs> what you're surprised about is that faith in Jesus Christ doesn't ultimately stabilize your life in the way you would think. I, I, I know you think that from the moment you come to faith in Jesus and profess He's your Lord and Savior, there should be a, a straight line, a linear progression from intention to fulfillment. Just look at that. It's beautiful, making progress every day. More and more joy. More and more of God. And I said, it's actually not the shape of the Christian life at all. Martin Luther, the German theologian, said, it's by living and dying that one becomes a theologian, which I didn't think was a very profound statement at all because it's by living and dying that you become anything, a peanut salesman at Safeco Field. But I thought about it, okay, what he, he's not saying that a theologian must have at one point in history lived, which I know is debatable in some cases. What he's actually saying is that the theology of the theologian is shaped in the experience of living and dying and living and dying, and living, and dying. It's how we learn not just about God, but how we know God and His good news in our lives. And it has to do with the troughs in the sinusoidal patterns of life. This is the rhythm of godly grief that the Apostle Paul has been talking about in seven chapters. Now he just gives us a summary statement, but he's been talking about Carrying about in his body the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ. He's been talking about power perfected in weakness. In, in weakness. You may know that word perfected. It's the word from which we get our English word telos, telic, the end, the final perfect state of things. He, he, Paul's saying, Power, the power of the good news of Jesus Christ is perfected in, in, in weakness. That's how, he, that's how he does it. It's in, the, it's in the troughs of life. 
It's that experience of grief that begins to forge with us, in us, our eternal identity. It's maturing. It's completing. It's developing. It's perfecting us. Well, the Corinthians had the same question that my MIT friend had of me. They have a real question. And they're waiting for the answer to the question. You know what it's like when you've got a question and someone starts talking about something else and you're like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in the first six chapters of Second Corinthians. See, they have a question about their life. They, they want to know about the plot lines of their life. The real question is, is everything okay? Paul, is this the, the life with Jesus that you've been describing for us? Are, are we actually experiencing his good news? Or have we just made this stuff up? That's what they want to know, and it's an earnest question they ask. But Paul says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Hold on a second. For six chapters... He, he won't answer the question. Let me, let me tell you, just to re- review, how it is that this question is formed in the minds of the Corinthians. Remember, Paul founds the Corinthian church, A.D. 50. And, and, and here in A.D. 54, he's come to pay a visit. Things haven't gone well. Somebody, a leader, a new leader, has stood to confront him, and a big fight breaks out. The congregation makes themselves complicit in this conflict by remaining silent. They do not come to Paul's defense. They say nothing about this uh, outsider who thinks he knows everything. Paul withdraws. He goes uh, by boat across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, he decides to address the Corinthians with a letter. It's a letter that Paul will say, I wrote in grief, crying. He calls it the letter of tears. And he will send that letter by the hand of Titus, his friend. So Titus will leave Ephesus by boat again across the Aegean Sea to Corinth, which is sort of southern Greece, south of the Isthmus. And Titus, I think with fear and trembling, comes into this congregation after a huge fight. And he says, I've got a letter to read from the Apostle Paul. And he reads this very severe letter. Paul tells it like it is. He confronts. The Corinthians, and they listen, and we find out here, it breaks their hearts. It moves them to grief. It reminds them of what life is supposed to be about. And so, they start about the work of making amends. And they send Titus back to Paul to let Paul know how they responded to Paul's letter of tears. And when Titus gets back to Paul, we find out Paul's very anxious about their response as well. He's been looking for Titus all over the place. They probably meet each other in Philippi, in Macedonia. And then we find out in verse 7, Paul says, you know what? When Titus came, I, I, I was encouraged. He, he told me about your longing, how, how you long for me, your heart goes out for me. You want reconciliation with your mourning, your grief over the brokenness of, of your behavior, and your zeal, your zeal to reclaim the life of faith that Jesus has promised you. But he doesn't tell them that until chapter 7. You, you see, so Titus is sent back 
to Corinth by Paul and with two other companions who are unnamed. And these three people now stand back in the assembly of Corinth, the church. And now Titus reads the response. And you've got to believe that the Corinthians are on the edge of their seats. They want to know, are we living with Jesus if we're living such a sinusoidal life? Is it real? But Paul doesn't answer the question. He goes, I let me, okay, I'll get back to you on that one. But first, let me tell you, and he goes on for six chapters, talking not about the Corinthians, but about himself and his own experience of failure and the, and the multifaceted uh, uh, taste of grief that Paul has experienced in his life. And I just want to remind us of what we've been studying together. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw Paul addressing himself to failure in crisis. And we learned there that a crisis is a place where we can learn to rely not on ourselves, but on the one who brings back life uh, out of death. In chapter 2, remember we talked about dreams that fail. Remember the open door that Paul could not walk through. We learned there that sometimes our experiences of failure are means by which God liberates us. From tyranny to the self. Chapter 3, we talked about moral failure. What happens when I'm the cause of the problem? And Paul says, would you look in a mirror? Because you who believe in Jesus Christ are under a new covenant in which God has set forth his Holy Spirit. When you look in a mirror and see your image, you see the image of Christ beginning to be shaped in your life. Chapter 4, at the beginning, we, we talked about the failure in ministry. What happens when my ministry just looks like a wreck? And Paul says, remember, remember the good news stands on its own. In uh, the end of chapter 4, we looked at discouragement uh, in failure. There we learned to dream our dreams, but to live our faith. And then finally, last week in chapter 5, Paul engaged us around relationship failure. What do you do when your relationships have failed? He says, look to the new creation and understand that God is doing a work of reconciliation right here and right now. Paul says, wait a minute, before I talk to the particulars of your grief, I want to broaden your perspective. I want you to see how many different kinds of, of grief they are, there are, how many, many ways that we can fail. Because I want you to see that behind them all, is an experience of God who meets us in our grief. He addresses himself to the trough, to the bottom of the sine curve. And then at last he comes to chapter 7. And in his concluding remarks, he does tell them how excited he is for their response. And he characterizes for them the kind of grief that they experienced. And he gives us this axiom of verse 10. Where he writes, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. Do you see the sequence there? Godly grief, repentance, salvation. These three things. Though then there's kind of an anti-sequence as well. It's opposite. What he'll call that worldly grief, regret, and death. Two kinds of grief. Really not two kinds of grief because the grief is the grief. What matters is how you respond to the grief. What distinguishes these two 
is, is the choice that you and I must make when we are sad. So what will we do with this sadness? But what's interesting is he uses two words to describe the choice that we have to make. One is called repentance and the other is called regret. And in English, both of those words share a prefix, re. In Greek, they share a prefix as well, meta, as in metamorphosis. Meta means change. So metamorphosis means change of shape. These two changes describe the difference between these two types of of grief, and it's a difference of orientation and a difference of agency. Let's look first at regret. What is regret a change of? Well, regret is a change of mood, a change of concern, a change of mood or a change of concern. And its orientation is backwards, historical. When I'm feeling this pain, I'm feeling a sense of loss. A new mood has come over me, a new sense of sadness, of brokenness, of despair, perhaps of bitterness, resentment. And I'm, I'm looking to the past. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of the pain within the terms of my history. Can, can I make it fit into what I've known about life? And agency. The agency of regret is myself. I, I may think about the future, but I don't look for comfort in the future if I'm regretting. What I do is I look past and I say, I'm sure sorry this has happened to me. I wish it had never happened to me. And I tell you what, I'm never going to let it happen again. So I might make a resolution. I will never do this. I will never open up my heart. I will never make myself vulnerable in that way again. I will always remember to do X, Y, and Z. See, I, 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 I. Regret puts a spotlight on me. Repentance is very different. Meta and then a verb. What is the change for repentance? It's not a change of mood. It's a change of life. And the orientation of repentance is not historical. It's futuristic. To repent is to turn around. To say, I know the history and I feel the pain of it. But I choose to look into the future and lay hold of the promise of God in Jesus Christ. The orientation of uh, repentance is forward and the agency is not myself, but it's God. See, remember, Paul calls uh, worldly grief worldly because it involves all the resources, all the understanding of the world, and it limits itself to those resources. But repentance, he calls a grief that's godly. Grief according to God. Grief in God's presence, according to the way God invites us to experience grief in Jesus Christ. I say, God, I'm hurting. I'm so broken. They don't even know what to do. It feels like my life is shrinking, collapsing upon itself. But I know that there's good news for me in Jesus Christ, the one who has come to me in suffering. And so I hold out my hands and I ask that you take hold of them and lead me forward into newness of life. 
Paul says that's the difference between worldly and godly grief. It's your response. And I say, well, is repentance really always the right response in grief? And Paul's so axiomatic here. I think, gosh, you know, it seems like there are an awful lot of experiences of grief in my life and in yours that don't have anything to do with what I've done wrong, right? I mean, oftentimes, uh, grief, I'm just, I'm just uh, innocent. You know, we gather around a bed in a hospital room and we look at someone who's just broken and there's no one's to blame for that. And we don't know what to do with that. Or in Manila, a man who's worked his whole life, his family, to buy a, a bicycle so that he can commute to work and the bicycle breaks and I say it's not only you're innocent, there may even be some culpability on the part of the social structures of the world. You may be a victim of injustice and oppression and somebody else's greed holding on to resources that they ought to have shared with you. Should you repent, we might ask? Jesus was asked this same question. A group of Jewish people in Luke chapter 13, we read, approach Jesus and they give him two case studies. They say, you talk a lot about repentance. Seems to be for everybody. But, but let me tell you about this. Take a situation where, this, these are two historical situations. There's some Judeans in a tower of Siloam falls on them. Thirteen of them die. Seem innocent. Or, or, t- take a situation where you've got some Galileans, people who come down like you from the north into Jerusalem to worship. And they bring their sacrificial offerings to the altar, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, uses his force and power to massacre them, mingling their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. What about that, Jesus? And they say, they must have been worse sinners. This is kind of interesting, the way they put it that way. You, you, You can immediately recognize the paradigm of regret that tries to make sense of grief within its own, the worldly economy. They must have had it coming to them, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, no. They're not experiencing pain and their loved ones are not grieving because they did something wrong, because they were worse than anybody else. But I tell you this, he says, everybody needs to repent. You too, repent. Now, it begins to challenge my understanding of repentance because I think I used to think about repentance as stop doing a few sins and start doing a few good things, right? Simple transaction, just give up this pattern and embrace this pattern. But apparently for Jesus, repentance is so much more than that. When Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent. He's not issuing a judgment. He's issuing an invitation. He's saying the whole system of life within a worldly sphere that has rejected God is going away. And you can live in that if you want. Or you can step across a line into what I call the kingdom of God. It's here right now. The kingdom is here. Repent. Step into the reality of God's world as it is being restored in me, the Messiah, he says. This is repentance. 
It's to let go of a world that resists at every turn the influence of God's grace and to receive the gift of that grace and to be utterly enveloped in it and defined by it. And the trough is a unique place to see through all the false assurances that the world offers us, is it not? Sometimes your brokenness and mine is as a sacrament because in that moment we can see life's pretenses. They just don't hold up when we're suffering. Yale philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff wrote recently in Christian Century magazine, on June 12, 1983, I received news that our 25-year-old son Eric had been killed the day before in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. Nothing has so changed my life as that news. My life at once was divided into before and after. After I'd recovered a bit from the shock, I decided to look for some books that might help me in my grief. That's what scholars do. They read books, he says. I found almost all of them unbearable. They were about grief, capital G, or death, capital D, or about the grief process. My problem was not with grief. My problem was that I was in grief. My problem was not with death. My problem was that Eric had died. I did not have questions about the grief process. I was grieving. And I found standing back to think and talk about the process obscene. What has struck me is how prominent is the strategy of disowning grief, either by doing one's best to get over it or by denouncing it as sinful. I could not and cannot disown my grief. That, for me, would amount to disowning Eric. I loved him. If he was worth loving when he was alive, he is worth grieving over when dead. Do you see how he's resisting the forces of regret that would say, you can figure this out. You can make sense of this. It oftentimes is wrapped in Christian or religious language. And Walter Storff says, no, I refuse to put a bow on my grief to try to live with an illusion that I can control it. Somehow it's okay if it sits in this little corner of my life. He says, no. But what he does do, instead of probing the pain as he holds on to the pain and pushes deeper into his confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Walter Storff is a Christian, and he and his wife had a requiem commissioned for Eric, and they wrote... Uh, the words, they adapted them from Scripture. At the center of the piece are the words uh, from Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. By his wounds we are healed. And just as apparently scholars read books, they also write books. And Walter Storff wrote a book called A Lament for a Son. In, in it he says, In the valley of suffering... Despair and bitterness are brood. That's regret. But there is also character made. The valley of suffering is the veil of soul making. And sometimes when the cry is intense, there emerges a radiance, which elsewhere seldom appears, a glow of courage, of love, of insight, of selflessness. Of faith. 
It is by living and dying that one becomes a theologian, Luther tells us. And Paul, in verse 10, says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, a glow, (laughs) brings no regret. We all live sinusoidal lives. This is even what salvation looks like. This is even what the life of our Savior looks like. And so Paul could say, I am always carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus, that I might always show forth his resurrection life. C.S. Lewis calls this the law of undulation. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, we have a fictional account, a fictional correspondence between a devil named Screwtape and his junior trainee named Wormwood. And Screwtape says, be very careful just because you see your patient or the human you're trying to tempt in one of life's troughs not to relax your efforts. Because the enemy, and that's how he refers to God, is most interested in the troughs. Because he says, you and I are very pleased to overwhelm the wills of those we seek to consume. But our enemy wants to ennoble their wills. He wants to invite them into union with him as a loving relationship between two who are free. And human beings are never more free than in the trough of life's grief. Screwtape says, our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of man is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all that talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become daughters and sons. In the trough, you and I have a choice to make. Regret is the despair that tries to force life straight between intention and fulfillment and will lose its sense when it resists that ironing out. Repentance is the life-changing decision to be embraced by Jesus Christ and to plot my line onto the curve of the dying and rising God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess that there is a curve in our lives and that makes us uncomfortable. 
We do experience failure in so many ways. And it breaks our hearts. And we don't know what to do with it. Thank you that you came to us in the form of one whose life was a failure. That you would meet us and reassure us in life's depths. Thank you that you didn't remain there but broke forth from the grave. That we might know that as we are in you, bound in union, we will also rise. Lord, teach us in our grief to see through the falsehoods of life, even the falsehoods of our own understanding, and to set them aside and to be turned by you into newness of life. For that gift, we are ever thankful. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.